Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Eggby, come in here. I'm here, Dr. Wolfenstein, and it's Gregor. I know that, IHOP. I want you to look at my latest creation. It's a new black. I thought orange was the new black. No, you're talking tuna fish. This is super-duper retina scooper black. If you look right at this swatch of it, you'll go blind. Look at it, Idris. I'm already blind. Remember? You blinded me last week. Oh, was that caused by the monkey nerve transplant? No. The kryptonite enema? Ugh, but no. The boneless guinea pig paninis? No, that was just lunch. And they were actually delicious. And it didn't turn me blind. It was the... Don't say it. I remember it now. It was the toxin-vomiting brain leech. I should have known you'd be a big, whiny baby about that. Your vision will come back all by itself by March 2026. I explained that in the consent form. You never showed me a consent form. Of course. You never would have consented. Look, I'm going to do a quickie sight restoration so you can look at my super-duper retina scooper black and go blind again. And then we can talk about mink eyeball transplants, which I have been itching to get into, but not as much as they're going to itch your eye sockets. Mink eyeballs? Do mink have good vision? Always with the questions, Igrain. Can I, can I ask another one? What's the point of this whole color thing? So I can license my new version of black to fashion designers and artists. <laughs> Licensing fees? That's what this boils down to? Whatever happened to the big stuff? Like crashing the moon into the earth and, and, and turning Unitarians into flies? I don't know. But you're right. I feel like I've been losing my edge a bit lately. But you know what would give me my edge back, Ivo? What? Giving you a spatio-temporal hyperlink wedgie! Get over No, Dr. Wolfenstein, no! The rest of you get ready for an episode about the battle to brew up the blackest black. And now, a vision and plum, Keegan-Michael Mackenpoop. Get out! Ow! 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 So this is an example of the kind of show which, on the slenderest of pretexts, I suggest to one of the producers, and then I go away, and they spend months trying to figure this whole thing out and come up with a, a fabulous show that I then have to reassume ownership of. So six weeks ago, I said to Josh Delia, here's this thing about the color black, and I barely understand it, but it seems really interesting. And then about six weeks later, Josh reappeared at my side, and he had this amazing story to tell. And so we are going to tell it to you uh, with the help of several guests. We are going to begin with the story of, you know, sort of the invention uh, uh, of a new black and then another new black. You've heard that orange is the new black. Well, that's not exactly the case. Stuart Semple joins us now, contemporary British artist known for his large-scale canvases, including text and found injury, <laughs> imagery, not injury, or perhaps injury, often addressing themes in popular culture. He's the creator of several uh, unique colors, including Pink, all caps, the world's pinkest pink paint, and most recently, Black 3.2, the world's blackest paint. So, well, first of all, Stuart, welcome to our conversation. 
Hello. How are you doing? So I'm doing just fine. I think a lot of people listening, you know, probably come at this from a fairly untutored position and they're thinking black is black. There's even a song, black is black. How, how, how can black be blacker? Maybe you can begin by explaining that. Yeah, sure. So um, black's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because it's not really a color. What you're talking about is uh, the absence of light. Other colors bounce light back at you, and that's how we see red and green and blue. But black's different, and it's a very, very exciting thing. So black's not like the other colors. And actually, some materials absorb more light than others. And ones that do that really, really well appear to be extremely black. So you created uh, Black 3.2, and we'll talk a little bit about the circumstances, the kind of Hegelian push and pull that resulted in the emergence of this. But before we do that, what's it like looking into Black 3.2? In other words, if I, I see it spread across the surface, will I, a not particularly observant mortal, know that I'm looking at a different kind of Black? Yeah, it's freakily weird. If you paint it on a 3D kind of object, it almost becomes like a void. It's a bit like a black hole. You you start to lose definition. You know, if you paint it on a penny, for example, all the details seem to disappear. Black 3.2 absorbs about 98 to 99% of visible light. So it's it's an odd thing. So this all kind of emerged as a result of a brouhaha in the art world uh, that began with an artist whom you had theretofore admired, Sir Anish Kapoor, and his acquisition uh, of something called Vanta Black from the British tech company Surrey Nanosystems. So that black, Vanta Black, was at that point the blackest black. And what happened? What made it controversial? Well, basically, what happened was a few years ago, Surrey Nanosystems announced they'd found this amazing way to grow carbon nanotubes on stuff. And they called it Vantablack. And this stuff absorbed 99.9% .9 of visible light. It was amazing. And they'd coat anything with it, you know, if you made cars or watches or whatever. But they made an exclusive deal with Anish Kapoor, this artist, this very big, very important, very wealthy artist, that he would be the only artist in the whole world who could use it for art. So the art community felt that was really wrong because art should be about generosity and sharing ideas and it seemed like a terrible thing to do. So there was this huge uproar in the art world, really, that Anish Kapoor should know better. He's this famous contemporary artist. He shouldn't be acting this way. They shouldn't make a deal with him. And any artist should have the same rights as fashion designers or, you know, other people. So it kicked off really big at that point. Now, one of your responses, and by the way, Anish Kapoor, if that name, if you can't place that name, if you can picture the big, silvery, reflective, bean-shaped thing in Chicago's Millennium Park, that is probably here in America, uh, Anish Kapoor's most famous work. So one of your responses was to see if you could create the pink equivalent of this, a very special and ultra pink pink. So tell us about that. Well, kind of. I mean, I'd been making my own paint since I was a kid anyway, and I had this pink that was insanely pink. I mean, it's so pink it kind of hurts your eyes and you can't even photograph it. 
And I thought, hang on a minute, am I just being like him? I mean, I, I've got this awesome thing and I don't really share it with anyone. And I came up with this idea to make this performance piece. So I'd make a website, put the pink on it, and I'd make it so that anyone in the world could use this pink apart from Anish Kapoor. So when you go to buy the pink off my website, you have to agree to a legal disclaimer that you're not Anish Kapoor, you're not going to share it with him, and to the best of your knowledge, information and belief, it won't make its way into his hands. And I thought it'd be a funny piece of art world, kind of in-joke, kind of comedy, and raise a bit of awareness towards elitism and accessibility and stuff. Um, how wrong I was, it blew up, it was insane, it went so viral, everyone was talking about it, and like a week later, people were buying this pink by the bucket loads, and my poor mum and me and my family, we were just jarring up all this pink for weeks on end, and it, it became really big, really unexpected, really flipping weird, and then Anish Kapoor got the pink, and then he dipped his middle finger in it, and then he posted on his Instagram, up yours pink, and at that point, all hell just basically broke loose. I, I feel like I'm hearing the plot of a Martin Amos novel being recited to me. I mean, it just, I, I uh, having followed this, obviously, it's, it's not, I'm not hearing it for the first time, but there's a way in which this, you, you almost would struggle to invent something this strange, the art world being rocked by this battle, first over the blackest black and then over ultra pink. Uh, and you're chuckling there in the background. I, I sense that you, you feel that a little bit. It's it's totally ridiculous. I mean, it's bonkers when you think about it. You've got two kind of artists fighting over these two colours, and you know, obviously, I I do care about the colours, and I and I want art materials to be accessible. And I'd love to have a world where everyone could express themselves with whatever they like. But it just became so comedic. And then he posted the thing, and then the whole community were asking me to make a black that was better than his black, and it it kind of felt like the war was on at that point, you know. And we're not even talking about Diamond Dust, the world's most glittery glitter, which you also made. Yeah, that was a bit cheeky. Um, <laughs> Diamond Dust's made out of shards of glass, and um, I think it'd be a bit nasty if anybody dipped their finger in that. Right. Um, uh, it's too bad glam rock is over because, obviously, yes. uh, you, you would have revolutionized it. So, yeah, so you do this, all this open source stuff, you know, and it's open source. Seven billion people minus one are eligible to uh, obtain uh, your pink, your glitter, but Kapoor is not. And And I assume that the art world shares your feeling, not that the art world speaks as one, but the art world shares your feeling that something as basic of as color or in the case of black the absence of color is not something that should be sort of kept to oneself or just licensed to one person only yeah i think so i think it's never happened before like artists have never been excluded from using something because they identify as artists before so i think a lot of people could see the inherent sort of prejudice in that yeah. Yeah. So I, one of the things that I wondered, and and we'll talk about this even more in the second segment, but whether, say, Rembrandt or Caravaggio would have understood the conversation that we're having now. In other words, would they have understood that there are blacks and blacker blacks and why an artist might want something so profoundly black that, that it sort of went into a whole new place? Or, or did they think of color and absence of color differently? 
oh no, they'd have been really obsessed with it. I mean, the the artists of their day, they were almost like the Hollywood movie directors. They had huge studios underneath them. They had hookups in India and China, colour men they knew, who they'd import colours. They they would make paints in their studios with their assistants and and closely guard their recipes. I mean, the history of art is is rife with people um developing colours and secret formulas and things like that. So they were always striving striving for punchier colours. And um, you only have to go to a museum and look at a Van Gogh painting to realise that if his brother hadn't have sent him great pain, we wouldn't have had these beautiful, vibrant works now. So they'd have been all over this. So, you know, in a way, knowing a little bit about you, this whole thing seems... I don't know, not very Stuart Sumpley in some ways. First of all, you are probably more associated with the adjective happy than you are associated with anything dark. Maybe, first of all, talk about your association with the notion of happiness. Well, I mean, happiness is uh, really important to me. My last big project was in the city of Denver, and it was called Happy City, and I worked with the city to do all these big public interventions where we, we installed an emotional baggage drop in Union Station, for example, or a giant sculptural smiley in an alleyway. I released thousands of artificial fake clouds from Tate Modern at the height of the recession because um, I really believe art can unite people and bring them together. I think self-expression is important. I think art's vital for us as human beings. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. But at the same time, I use the internet a lot in my work and I like to share things with people and distribute things. And and the art materials feel very much like a part of that, actually. They're they're about inclusion and, and empowerment and... Everything I love about art, it seemed like this Anish Kapoor thing kind of like went against. It just didn't feel genuine, generous. It it felt kind of wrong. Right. So, yeah, I mean, the the word happy comes up in the title of a number of your works uh, and and exhibitions. And I I just wonder if you're worried now that someday uh, in the Times it'll say – uh, Stuart Semple, dead at the age of 102, famous as the black guy, the guy who invented the open source. <laughs> I mean, I, I, so, I assume your plan is to live this down at some point. I don't know. I, I don't mind what people remember me for. I just want to keep making my stuff. And um, if I can make things that are valuable and useful, then that's what I want to do. Is there? I know that at one point you were quite an, an admirer of Anish Kapoor, and I think you even own one of his works. And, and one of the defenses that he's offered is that the, this nanotechnology company had said that this particular color would be somewhat dangerous for the amateur to use. Is there any strength in that argument that Vanta Black is really sort of best left in the hands of just a very highly trained few? Um, not really, because it's not the only nano black out there. There's a there's a couple of American companies that make it, and they're happy to serve artists. Um, spray paint's pretty dangerous if you inhale it. I know artists that make work with chainsaws or um, <laughs> pouring lead into things. I think I think we're all grown up and sensible enough not to go and snort a load of Vanta black. It is interesting that this type of black, which I mean, I have to confess that I barely understand what it is we're talking about. Nanotechnology wouldn't be one of my big strengths. But it feels as though it's a network of things as opposed to a thing. You know, I think when we think of an artist holding a palette, you know, and and with daubs of paint, we think of that paint as a thing. But it feels almost as though this color represents a network of these nanotubes. 
So to put it simply, imagine you could zoom in on the stuff mm -hmm. with a mega, mega microscope and then imagine a forest with loads of trees sticking up. Light would go into the forest and bounce about all over the place and not come out again, so it would look insanely black. That's how it works. So it's a lot more like a technology or a coating than a paint. Now, what we developed with the community is absolutely a paint. Similar, different way of getting a visually similar looking result. All right, we're going to take a, a little break here, uh, and then Stuart Semple is going to come back. Uh, we're going to be joined also by John Harvey, uh, author of many books, including Men in Black and the Story of Black. You see a theme emerging there. So let's take that uh, break, and we'll be back with more of our conversation about black. This is Colin McEnroe. If you're just tuning in, we are having a conversation today about black. But I don't know, not your mother and father's black, certainly not your grandfather's black. This has uh, so far been a conversation about a kind of black that only recently came into existence and has been, therefore, somewhat controversial. Uh, with us is Stuart Semple, a contemporary British artist known for his large-scale canvases, including text and found imagery, uh, often addressing themes in popular culture. Uh, he's the creator of several unique colors, including pink, all capitals, and uh, the world's Pinkest Pink Paint, uh, and the most and most recently Black 3.2, the world's blackest black paint. Joining us now also, John Harvey, Life Fellow and former Director of Studies in English at Emmanuel College at Cambridge University, an art critic and the author of many books, including Men in Black and the Story of Black. His latest novel, Pax, is entered for the 2020 UK Booker Prize. So uh, we should also say that we did ask uh, Anish Kapoor, uh, who was sort of the other side of this uh, argument, um, to put it mildly, uh, over black uh, to come on the show, but he declined. So I'm going to ask both of you this, but we, maybe I'll start with you, John Harvey, since you're a new entry to the conversation. Why are we having this conversation about black and not, say, green or blue? Uh, why is it the case that black is so heavily contested among these artists? I think black Black was called the king of colors, the queen of colors, the prince of colors by some people. Other people thought that black was death, the death of the soul. It's tended all colors. Colors are very easy to use for signals and very easy to attach meanings to. But the color black, I think, has been especially useful for extreme or drastic meanings. And it's had both good, good, exciting, luxurious and sexy meanings and dark and terrible, nightmarish meanings. Let's go to the artist on this. So, Stuart, what, what is, uh, you've talked a little bit about this in the first segment, but say a little bit more about why, why black might be more important than a, uh, than a primary color. I don't know. I mean, I mean, speaking for myself, I think there's just something awesome about space. You know, you walk outside and you look up into the night sky and it kind of goes forever. And I'm thinking about the start of when artists started making things. It's like, it's like charcoal. It comes out of fire. It's like uh, a very basic, it's, it's almost like no colour. It feels like the building block of, of things. And it, it seems like, you know, it's, it's the fundamentals of drawing start with, with that type of pigment. Right. I'm also wondering whether it changes as we get away uh, from non-representational art. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, once again, I don't know anything. But black in Mondrian, I mean, how different can it be in, in that kind of work? I think in contemporary work, the stronger and more potent the black, the, uh, the more intense the work can be. I think it's useful for 
for every artist. I mean, interestingly, there's a show on in London at the moment. It's a Rembrandt show, and uh, we work with the curators to coat the walls in Black 3, and it really gives them a different context. And, and I can't help but thinking if, if Rembrandt had access to it, he, he'd have loved to, to use it. Um, likewise with Caravaggio, you know, I remember seeing his work at the Brera in, in, in Milan and being blown away at how these characters kind of came to life out of the, the black. And I don't think it changes because it's the present day or, or we're making abstract art. I think um, paint's paint and it's going to be useful however you want to express yourself. Right. John, you can talk a little bit about certain artists. Uh, I mean, Da Vinci, Matisse, Renoir, uh, all these artists had very specific feelings about black. Maybe you can share some of them with us. Well, Caravaggio is the artist who's perhaps the most famous for his use of black. Um, He uh, used it frequently. He was a swarthy man himself. He wore black. He had a black dog that he taught to do tricks. And he developed a special way of making pictures which used more black than other artists and created a more intense effect of blackness than other artists did. It seems as though he painted the walls of his studio black, and also that he had a single light source, which was probably a little shutter in the ceiling or at the top, which would let in just a little light and illuminate people so a part of their face or their body would be brightly lit, but the rest of their body might actually be almost black, and he would then have a a kind of black shadow further behind them. And he liked the intensity of that, but I think it also suited his um, the intensities of his nature. He was a bit like a Dostoevsky character. Um, he was very pious on the one hand. On the other hand, he liked gun, sort of sword fights in the street. Um, mm-hmm. He was uh, he killed people. He may have felt he was damned for his sexual life. So I think the intensities of his life are reflected in the intensities of his art, which make a very strong use of black. Right. As was said of Byron, Caravaggio was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Uh, and, and so, I mean, it seems to me, John Harvey, that's the most obvious evocation of black, too. Someone has a black heart. The black is not, for the most part, associated with the forces of goodness. Light are the forces of goodness. Light probably is the thing that in our earliest days allows us to have some control over our environment in the part of the day that is night. So, uh, I mean, does black have any positive associations? Well, if you, on the one hand, there's black hearts, but on the other hand, uh, women or attractive women may have black eyes and um, they may have black hair. And Snow White in the fairy tale has jet black hair. She doesn't have black eyes, but black-eyed Susans and so forth. There's a lot of, um, there's really a lot of sexy black and also luxury black materials were given as presents between princes for as far back as you go, like things made of ebony, black marble. Black marble was used as a luxury material. So you can find the positive and the sexy and the luxury blacks. But of course, the dominant meaning has been negative and dark. And if you think of the value black had in language, it's pretty much on the negative side to do with death and shame and disgrace, much more than exciting black. Right. It does seem as though one of the ways that we react to black is the fact that at some level, we may not think about it consciously all the time, but we're going to get a lot less pigmented after we die. We're going to gradually turn kind of black. And I walked into an exhibit a couple of years ago at the Palais de Tokyo Museum in in Paris, and they were kind of recreating the river Styx in this underworld, these little floating boats, and people could even get into them. And it was so dark, you know, (laughs) and and 
that's the other thing that we are repeatedly told, right? That the underworld is dark, that when we die, our souls are also going to go to a place that is black. I think, and black is, as you said before, it is connected with night and darkness and the loss of light and the the river sticks sounds a wonderful thing to have seen, as exciting as seeing, as if it almost as if it were Venter Black. And actually, the American author Edgar Allan Poe likes black water. I mean, he gives it a, bad, a sort of sinister meaning, but he certainly likes to recur to black water. Um, it is associated with very negative things. But on the other hand, shrouds were might be white. And I think ghosts are white because the linen that people were wound in when they died were white. And if you go to the eastern side of the world, um, the color of death is white. Funerals are much more associated with white clothes and the color of whiteness, which is also the color of bleached bones. So that actually, I think the two colors, black and white, have had a sort of double act um, in relation to death. Um, strong, the black playing a much stronger part in, in the West than in the East. Right. And by a little spoiler alert, in a few minutes, we're going to do our final segment here about a new white that is whiter than other whites. But Stuart, I want to go to you as an artist. An artist wants to make his or her mark. I mean, that is what art was from its earliest moment. And so that's maybe the paradox here that people trying to flee from the night to the earliest humans, Neolithic peoples would have often gone to caves uh, as a place to be safe from the terrors of the night. If they could bring fire with them, so much the better. And then at a certain point, they wanted to make a mark on the walls. They wanted to make pictures on the walls. And so right away, humankind is probably working in black before it works in any other color. Is that right? It does seem to make sense that they, they would, there'd be some sort of burning coal-like thing that was used. And, and presumably, maybe a lot of that's faded away over the years or, or we haven't seen it. But yeah, I think, it, I think it's a basic human need, isn't it, to communicate or express in some way. And it does appear like we started doing that by making marks pretty early on. And I'd have thought, they probably were quite black because that was the material that was there. And as we move forward, I mean, as we start to communicate in a more sophisticated sophisticated way, black is the default color for type, for ink, for, I mean, most of what we read, unless there's some compelling reason for it to be in red type or some other color, most of what we read to this day, thousands of years later, is still black. There's some way in which that it, it's this very basic communicative color. So I, wanna, I want the two of you to talk a little bit about something that Stuart said earlier, which I, I, I know is technically true. But I guess the question is, is it essentially true? And that is that black is not really a color. It's the absence of color. So, John Harvey, why don't you lead this conversation off? How do you see that question? I think the the interesting thing is that the color that black is, is a very low level of white. It is the same as white. It has the same balance of the spectrum colors that white does, the mix of all of them, but reduced to a very low level. Actually, if you have a sheet of paper which has only 10% of the normal whiteness of a sheet of white paper, it starts to look black to us. So in that sense, I think black is, as it were, you could say it's the tiny, the tiny brother of white. It's a very low level of white light, uh, or we invent a black as almost zero level of white light. On the other hand, the strong point for black, I think, is that we see black. It's not an absence of sight. But the way the retina works is that the cells at the back of it, they send an electrical signal both when 
a bright light reaches them and when they, they perceive a darkness. And I think the reason we do that is because when we were very primitive organisms, to find a safe, dark place was as important as seeing where you were in the daytime. Right. So, Stuart, just react to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally get the point. I mean, I have no doubt that it is seen. I, uh, you know, there is an experience of, of seeing something. I'm not saying that uh, it, it's invisible, and I, I totally agree with the fact that there's a continuum between white and black, with one being 100% white and one being zero. Um, my point of it not being a colour is is more from a sort of physics point of view in terms of um, we perceive colour by the, the wavelengths of light that are bounced back off an object. So a red thing absorbs all the other colours apart from red, which is bounced back into your eye, which you therefore perceive and what we're starting to see with some of these what you could call super black um, materials is that as they're sucking in more and more light less and less is being bounced back so from my point of view as a as a painter i can dig up cobalt from the earth and it's blue and i can hold it in my hand and i i can tangibly say that's some b- blue color or i can find some cadmium and say you know that's that's pretty red with with black i struggle to comprehend it as a color because for me it, it, we're not looking at color we're, we're looking at the the anti-effect of light so um, maybe it's just a nuance in language and, and me and john are saying the same thing um in a different way but before i go back to john on that though it, it intrigues me and i had devoted zero thought to this until we were getting ready for the show but uh whether we're talking about your black or kapoor's black we're always talking in terms of the high 90 percent of light right that it's absorbing 96 percent of light 99 percent of light so presumably there's no such thing or we have yet to see, uh, maybe it exists in space, I have no idea. But Stuart, we have yet to see actual true 100% black? Mm, no, because I, I think um, to sort of be annoying, you, you can close your eyes and put your jumper over your head. Um, and it's pretty dark. Um, it's free. No one can license it. I, I think we can get there. Well, so uh, the thing that he said before that, John and Harvey, gets me back to a question for you, which is, and it's one I think that you have pondered, which is, is seeing blackness a sensation or is it the absence of a sensation? Are we, in fact, seeing a thing or, or failing to see anything? I think, well, how you see black, I think, depends partly on what else you're seeing. So that if you're in total darkness, I don't think you think you're seeing black. I think you think you're seeing black when you can perceive some contrast between the black thing and brighter things around it. But when you have that contrast, I think the black registers very strongly and even more strongly with these 3.0 or venter black. And as to finding black pigment, I take Stuart's point about the, the colored pigments and blues and reds that one can mix, mix to make a paint. But also people have made black paint since the beginning of time, especially using soot. The Egyptians did it, and the people in the caves did it, as you said earlier, Colin. 
So, uh, yeah, well, I, we'll, we'll leave that question because it's, we'll let our listeners uh, have uh, fights about it over their cocktails tonight. Uh, but I want to just talk a little bit about the paradox of black uh, John Harvey, particularly in the world of fashion. We see two different things happening. One of them, obviously, is, you know, whether we're talking about Coco Chanel or, or somebody else, the notion of black being a huge part of, of high fashion, being something elegant. That's why we have all these conversations about whether orange is the new black. Something's always the new black because black is so profoundly fashionable. But there's that. There's this profoundly chic notion about black. And then there's also the black of that's its opposite, that plainness with groups like the Mennonites and the Amish, uh, widows who do not want to display any color, groups uh, that are into self-denialism for religious purposes. They dress in black because there's something about black that does suggest a withdrawal from the world of pleasure. So, John Harvey, t- help us with that paradox a little bit. Well, I think Black does black does have these opposite values. It can be very conspicuous and smart, but it can also be very inconspicuous. It can can be a way of disappearing. And for instance, in the Japanese puppet theatre, the people working the puppets wear black themselves. So you're sort of in a way you see them, but you're supposed not to see them. They're invisible. And I think black has been worn for self-effacement, for invisibility for as long as it has been worn by other people to show their wealth or to show their smartness. So that, for instance, servants have very often worn black in the past. They've had sort of plain black liveries. I suppose what makes a big difference is luster. If the black material has some sort of luster or sheen or shine to it, reflects a bit of light somewhere, and so that you perceive a certain richness of texture or a certain quality of material, then it lends itself very much to smart and or even you know, dramatic and sexy use. If it is dulled without reflectiveness, without luster, then it's very good for mourning and for, for shame and humiliation and for penitence. And what is interesting is the Victorians developed an enormously elaborate sort of a style of dress suitable to funerals, dressed developed much more elaborately by the ladies than by the gentlemen. But the point about black for mourning was that it should have no luster. So that for a period, you're all, you, they wore sort of lusterless black silk, other materials with every step taken possible to remove luster and shine from it. And then as you moved into from to half mourning, you began to be allowed to wear a little bit of black jewellery like the jet stones and so forth. So, But monastic orders have tended, a lot of them, to wear a black, a very plain, light-absorbing, unreflective black, this black of anonymity, black of self-effacement, black of humility, and an extreme of grief and shame. There are these opposite extremes. Stuart, there's another group of people who wear black, at least in stereotype, and that would be artists and intellectuals. And if I try to make have a mental picture of Jackson Pollock, I see him, I imagine him in black, uh, Sartre and de Beauvoir sitting around uh, in black. So what's that, what's that all about? It's not about self-denialism. It's probably not about being chic either. But I, I do think, anyway, of the cognoscenti dressing in black. I don't know. I mean, I spend a lot of my time at art fairs and there's definitely a sort of international art world black going on. Uh, there's a lot of art, art sort of dealers looking like that. I'm thinking of Andy Warhol in the 80s mm-hmm. in his black leather jacket and his skin-tight black jeans. I, I think there's a style to it. I think 
there's just something kind of chic and artistic and a bit sort of Parisian about the whole thing, isn't there? And um, something kind of glamorous and a bit sort of bohemian-ish. And also the fact that we're always thinking about what we're going to make all the time and it's kind of easy to throw on something black. You can't really go wrong. It's like the easy choice of what to, to wear without looking bad, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I also feel, Stuart, that if I were to take a stroll around MoMA today or the Pompidou, uh, I'd see a lot of color. I'd see, we just did a show last year on Saul LeWitt. We'd see these you know bright lines uh, in, in colors. I'd see Rothko's reds. And I wonder, I mean, where is black these days in terms of the art world? Uh, is it the powerful thing that Caravaggio made it to be? Gosh, you are, you're, you're asking about something. But, I mean, there's so much art being made. I mean, mm, just true. in this last minute, yeah. probably a million <laughs> artists have finished something and, and they're making all sorts of everything all the time. Um, really, like if anything, you know, for me, I'm sort of seeing the art world move towards video and performance and interactive and digital anyway and uh, really maybe colour's not the same conversation it was before you know I think art's kind of moved on a lot although there's fantastic colourists going on and um, you, you know it's still happening I, I just don't think it's you know, I don't think we're really having the debate about colour in art that, that that we have in the past. You know, there's been huge periods in art history where where we've had big old um, discussions about that. It doesn't seem to be as much on the radar. So, um, Stuart Semple, if uh, John Harvey would like to get a tube of your Black 3.2 and stop seeing it on his computer, how does he do that? You can go to culturehustle.com. Culturehustle.com. And as long as you're not in Kapoor and you confirm you're not in Kapoor, we will send it to you for what it costs us to make. Just the point on the computer thing, um, the pixels on your screen are either on at 255 or off at zero. There's very little differentiation. So um, I'm all about seeing art and colour in real life, which is why people need to get off their screens and go to museums and see real (laughs) colour, not these fake RGB backlit versions of art. It's really bad. All right. So, John Harvey, you, know, you, you can own a, a tube of this black, and I would imagine uh, someone as interested in black as you are might be interested in such a thing. Thank you very much. Can I just ask, does Stuart have a black work easily seeable at some gallery or place in London where I could actually see, see his black, not on the computer screen, but uh, actually in practice? Great question. It's a great question. Um, sadly not, because interestingly, John, it's actually too black for my paintings. I, it, it, it's just, it's too much. I, I can't cope with it. So I don't actually use it. For me, the artwork is actually the object of the paint and to send that to other artists. So it's like that empowering kind of performance. So it's not so much that I kind of want to use it in work. The art is the fact that this huge art community is using it to make great art. And there's lots of them using it. Um, you can go to the Rembrandt show at the Dodge Picture Gallery and you can see the walls that the curators have painted with Black 3 uh, against his paintings. And it's uh, a nice experience. You have to be careful because I did read uh, as I was getting ready for the show about a thing Kapoor did, I think, in Portugal where he was trying to illustrate the abyss. And it was like this eight foot pit. But the black that he used on it was, was so solid looking that a man walked right into it and fell into the pit because... Uh, it didn't look like a hole. It looked like a thing. So uh, so black can be dangerous, too. All right. Well, you, you guys have been so great to talk to us. Uh, Stuart Semple, contemporary British artist and the creator, most recently, of Black 3.2, but also the world's pinkest, pinkest paint. 
P-I-N-K. John Harvey, a life fellow and former director of studies in English at Emmanuel College at Cambridge University, the author of many books, including Men in Black and the Story of Black. Thank you for being with us today. Our pleasure. Thank you. All right. Deep breath, everybody. Uh, We're going to take a little break here. And when we come back, we're going to switch gears. We're going to switch gears to white, but the whitest white of all whites. And I had a dream. It was all black. black, All black. Everything. Today's show was produced by Jack Black, Hugo Black, Louis Black, and Karen Black. Also by Josh Nalea and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Rebecca Black, but only on Friday, Friday. Gotta get down on Friday. In the last eight years, that Rebecca Black video has been watched 139 million times. Think about that. That's more than the population of Canada, Saudi Arabia, and Peru combined. Anyway, enough about Black. And now... Here's Colin talking about white. We have been talking for a long time now about blacks and blacks that are blacker than the blackest black you've ever seen splashed on a canvas or in the night sky. But we are going to, I guess, go to the other part of the spectrum, uh, although I've just been re-educated about that whole question about the difference between black and white. But joining us now uh, is Silvia Vignolini, uh, Associate Professor at the University of Cambridge in Chemistry and Bio-Inspired Materials. She's a lead researcher and creator of a new ultra-white coating modeled on beetle scales. So welcome to our conversation, Silvia Vignolini. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So uh, let's start with the beetle itself. What is the name of the beetle, and, and, and why is it so extremely white? This beetle is called Cyphercillus, and it's uh, white. The reason why it's white, we still don't know. So <laughs> we, didn't, we, didn't, we don't know from our uh, colleague biologists, the zoologists, what is the function of this, uh, of this whiteness. So there are some theories that, that the beetle lives uh, on uh, white uh, mushrooms, so it uses this, this whiteness to camouflage itself, but there is no real uh, answer into this uh, puzzle, so we still don't know why it's white. And what you know for sure, it is really efficient to make white with a, an incredibly small amount of material. Right. So when you say a very small amount of material, the white is achieved by a very, very dense structure uh, of, of scales, I guess, right? Um, but tell us more about this. Essentially, in general, to make white is not that difficult. Lots of things around us are really white. So even if milk itself is white in a, in a glass, so it's not difficult to achieve white. What it is challenging is to achieve white with a really small amount of material. So if you think about, for example, something that is familiar to us, a white paint, and you want to paint a wall, for example, that is before has been painted with a strong coloration like red or also even black, you know for your experience that you have to apply many layers of paint in order to have a really nice white uh, coverage. And instead, if you are able to mimic the structure of the beetle scale, it would be possible to achieve whiteness using 20 times less of the material. Um, I, I know that this white that you are working on right now is not uh, commercially available, not popularly available, but does it have a name yet? Is, what is it going to be called when we really begin to see it and hear about it? 
you know, when I was asked this question before, we say we doesn't have a real name because it's uh, it's still white. But maybe if we want to give it a name, we will call it uh, cipher white because it's inspired to this uh, to this fancy beetle. Right, and and so you know, it's sort of interesting because we talked uh, in earlier in the show about this incredibly incredibly black black that's achieved through a very dense network of carbon nanotubes. This is done entirely through technology, entirely in laboratories. It seems as though this beetle has done the same thing with white, but just in, in nature somehow, right? It, it basically has created a network of scales that perfectly reflect light? Exactly. I think this is what is really fascinating of this uh, research is because in principle you can achieve functionality that uh, for us uh, it's uh, challenging to achieve in the, in the lab, but in like in a cell in, living, in the condition of uh, relative uh, humidity and uh, room temperature, and this is incredible. And um, we started to think how the beetle develop uh, the material, and we started to think how we, can, how we can also try to make similar material copying the strategies that nature essentially uh, developed. And therefore, we started to use a material that is really similar to the one used by the beetle. The beetle uses chitin, that is a polysaccharide. And we started to use cellulose, that is a similar polysaccharide, but it's more abundant and it comes from plants. And we can reproduce the same type of network that, can, that allows us to obtain this white using really small amount of material. So I'm trying to imagine a whiter white than what I'm familiar with. So when I think of white, because I'm sometimes a writer, I think of a blank page of paper, a blank page of paper, which is dauntingly white. I'm assuming the white we're talking about is whiter than that. Uh, it's, it's difficult to define white because this is, again, a question of perception. But mm-hmm. uh, in, if you measure the spectral response, our white is as white as other white material. The only main difference is that can be achieved with using a really small quantity of matter. So if you want our white, is lighter than any other white material that you have available now. So in other words, if, if I want to paint my red house white with normal paint, it's going to look pink on, probably on the first coat, and I'm going to have to put a lot of coats and thicknesses of paint on so that uh, the other color doesn't show through. I'm, I'm sensing that someday uh, I, I won't have to do that, that this small amount of this, um, th- this powerful white will do the job. Exactly. It has a really good coverage, essentially. You can achieve the same, in, the same brightness of white, the same intensity of white, using 20 times less material. And, and I'm also intrigued, too, because a couple of years ago, I had a small brush with melanoma. But as a result of that, I have to you know, be very careful about what I put on my face to, to make sure that I don't uh, get too much sun exposure. And whenever I do that, I'm always wondering, well, what chemicals are, <laughs> are in the stuff that I'm putting on my face to keep me safe? And are they all safe chemicals? So I, I'm, I'm liking the idea of this, which seems to be derived exclusively from these very natural products. You did touch uh, one of the main uh, important applications of this material because the material is cellulose, so it's really like biocompatible, it's even edible. So what you put in your face is essentially it's a cream that contains titanium nanoparticles. And these titanium nanoparticles have been proved that they are not uh, 100% safe. So ideally, and more in general, to try to substitute this, this methodology with more biocompatible material, it's not only better for, for us, but in, in principle, it's also better for the environment because cellulose is the most abundant 
biopolymer that we have available on the planet, and therefore it's also renewable, is a sustainable resource. It seems there's almost a, a moral lesson in all this, which is that, you know, all over the world we have chemists working in all kinds of laboratories trying to develop various products, various advances using complicated chemical combinations. And here you've found a way to do this pretty amazing thing just using what's present in nature, just taking what these beetles are doing and mimicking it with a natural source. Yeah, we are really proud about this because it, this was one of the, the fortunate events. And it, this is really important because um, the first time that I went to a colleague and I said that I study the optical property of a beetle, everyone was kind of surprised and asked me, why would you do that, right? And the, the reason why we did it is to understand how this insect could manipulate light. But when we did it in the first place, we were not thinking about application. It was really trying to understand what type of structure they can develop. It was really fundamental type of question, a fundamental science question, with not an application, a directed application in mind. But when you understand how things work, you can also then come up with good ideas on how you can exploit it in everyday life. And this is why it's really important also to support blue sky research where we don't have at the beginning a clear idea of what is going to be the application because uh, often when we do so is when we find really revolutionary concepts that that can be applied to uh, and impact really the society. All right. So don't step on a beetle because it might uh, hold the key to the future (laughs) in it. And we obviously cannot get this white yet, but we look forward to it. I think it should be called Sylvia White, but who knows what it'll be called. Uh, Sylvia Vignolini, Associate Professor at the University of Cambridge in Chemistry and Bio-Inspired Materials, lead researcher and creator of a new ultra-white coating modeled on these beetle scales. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And to those of you listening, thank you for spending time with us, too. As usual, we've told you some stories that you didn't know anything about and might stretch your imagination a little bit. So come back tomorrow and we'll do it again. 